Section 42 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Nater. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. The Great Explorers and Travelers of the 19th Century, by Jules Verne. Second Part, Chapter 3, Part 2. The North Pole, 3. In spite of all the fatigue and suffering so bravely borne, the explorers were quite ready to make yet another attempt to reach the shores of the Polar Sea, and at the end of 1823 Franklin received instructions to survey the coast west of Mackenzie River, all the agents of the company being ordered to supply his party with provisions, boats, guides, and everything else they might require. After a hearty reception at New York, Franklin went to Albany by way of the Hudson, ascended the Niagara from Lewiston to the famous falls, made his way thence to Fort St. George on the Ontario, crossed the lake, landed at York, the capital of Upper Canada, Sik, passed Lakes Siamese, Huron, and Superior, where he was joined by twenty-four Canadians, and on the 29th of June, 1825, came to Lake Meite, then alive with boats. Whilst Dr. Richardson was surveying the eastern coast of Great Bear Lake, and back was superintending the preparations for the winter, Franklin reached the mouth of the Mackenzie, the navigation of which was very easy, no obstacles being met with except in the delta. The sea was free from ice, and black and white whales and seals were playing about at the top of the water. Franklin landed on the small island of Gary, the position of which he determined as northern latitude 69 degrees 2 minutes, western longitude 135 degrees 41 minutes a valuable fact proving as it did how much confidence was to be placed in the observations of mackenzie the return journey was made without difficulty and on the fifth of september the explorers arrived at the fort to which dr richardson had given the name of franklin the winter was passed in festivities such as balls etc in which canadians english scotch french eskimo and indians of various tribes took part on the 22nd of June, a fresh start was made, and on the 4th of July, the fort was reached, where the Mackenzie divides into two branches. There the expedition separated into two parties, one going to the east and the other to the west, to explore the shores of the Arctic Ocean. Franklin and his companions had hardly left the river, when he met near a large bay of numerous party of Eskimo, who at first testified great delight at the rencontre but soon became obstreperous and tried to carry off the boat. Only by the exercise of wonderful patience and tact were the English able to avert bloodshed on this emergency. Franklin now surveyed and gave name of Clarence to the river separating the English from the Russian territories, and a little further on was discovered another stream, which he called the Cunning. On the 16th of April, finding he had only made half of the distance between Mackenzie River and Icy Cape, Though the winter was rapidly approaching, Franklin turned back and embarked on the beautiful Peel River, which he mistook for that of Mackenzie, not discovering his error till he came in sight of a chain of mountains on the east. On the 21st of September he got back to the fort, after having in the course of three months traversed 2,048 miles and surveyed 372 miles of the American coast. Richardson, meanwhile, had advanced into much deeper water, with far less floating ice, and had met with a great many Eskimo of mild and hospitable manners. He surveyed Liverpool and Franklin Bays, 
and discovered opposite the mouth of the coppermine a tract of land separated from the continent by a channel not more than twenty miles wide to which he gave the name of wollaston his boats arrived at coronation gulf explored on the previous trip on the seventh of august and on the first of september they got back to fort franklin without having sustained any damage in dwelling on paris voyages we have for the time turned aside from those made at the same time by ross whose extraordinary exploration of baffin's bay had brought upon him the censure of the admiralty and who was anxious to regain his reputation for skill and courage though the government had lost confidence in him he won the esteem of a rich shipowner who did not hesitate to entrust to him the command of steamship victory on which he started for baffin's bay on the twenty fifth of may eighteen thirty for four years nothing was heard of the courageous navigator but on his return at the end of that time it turned out that his voyage had been as rich in discoveries as had been paris first trip ross entering prince regent's inlet by way of barrow and lancaster sounds had revisited the spot where the fury had been abandoned four years previously and continuing his voyage in a southerly direction he wintered in felix harbour so named after the equipper of the expedition ascertaining whilst there that the lands he had passed formed a large peninsula attached on the south to the northern coast of america in april eighteen thirty james ross nephew of the leader of the party set out in a canoe to examine the shores of this peninsula and those of king william's land and in november of the same year all had once more to go into winter quarters in sheriff's harbour it being impossible to get the vessel more than a few miles further north the cold was intense and it was agreed by the sailors of the victory that this was the very severest winter ever spent by them in the arctic regions the summer of eighteen thirty one was devoted to various surveys which proved that there was no connection between the two seas all that was accomplished this season was to bring the victory as far as discovery harbour a very little further north than that of sheriff the ensuing winter was so intensely severe that the vessel could not be extricated for her ice prison and but for the fortunate discovery of the provisions left by the fury the english would have died of hunger as it was they endured daily greater and greater privations and sufferings before the summer of eighteen thirty three at last enabled them finally to leave their winter quarters and go by land to prince regents and barrow straits they had just reached the shores of baffin's bay when a vessel appeared which turned out to be the isabel once commanded by rosk himself and which now received the refugees from the victory but england had not all this time been forgetful of her children and had sent an expedition in search of them every year in eighteen thirty three back franklin's companion was the leader and he starting from fort revolution on the shore of slave lake made his way northward discovered tlony Chaw desert river and settled down in winter quarters with the intention of reaching the next year the polar sea where he supposed ross to be held prisoner when he heard of his incredible return journey over land back therefore gave up the next season to the survey of the fine fish river discovered the previous year and sighted the queen adelaide mountains with capes booth and ross eighteen thirty six found him at the head of a new expedition which was to attempt to connect by sea the discoveries of ross and franklin it failed and the accomplishment of this task assigned to it was reserved to peter williams dees and thomas simpson all officers in the service of the hudson's bay company 
who, leaving Fort Chippeway on the 1st of June, 1837, went down the Mackenzie, arriving on the sea coast on the 9th of July, and making their way along it to the northern latitude 71 degrees 3 minutes, and western longitude 156 degrees 46 minutes, that is, to a cape they named Simpson, after the governor of their company. Thomas Simpson now made his way overland with five men to Port Barrow, already sighted in the direction of Bering Strait by one of Beechy's officers, so that the whole of the North American coast, from Cape Turn again to Bering Strait, was now complete, and there was nothing left to do but to explore the space between the former and Point Ogle, a task accomplished by the explorers in a later expedition. Leaving the copper mine in 1839, they followed the eastern coast, arriving on the 9th of August at Cape Turn again, which was too much encumbered with ice to be rounded. Thomas Simpson therefore remained near it for the winter, discovered Victoria Land, and on the 12th of August 1839 arrived at Back River. The rest of the month he devoted to the exploration of Boothia. The whole of the coastline of North America was now accurately laid down, but at the cost of what struggles, devotion, privation, and sufferings? What, however, is human life when weighed in the balance with the progress of science? And with what disinterestedness and enthusiasm must be imbued the savants, sailors, and explorers who gave up all the joys of existence to contribute to the best of their power to the progress of knowledge, and to the moral and intellectual development of humanity? With the voyages last recorded, the discovery of the earth was completed, and with our account of them, our work, which began with the first attempts of the earliest explorers, also closes. The shape of the earth is now known, the task of explorers is done. The land on which man lives is henceforth familiar to him, and he has now only to turn to account the vast resources of the countries to which access has recently become easy, or of which he can without difficulty possess himself. How rich in lessons of every kind is this history of twenty centuries of exploration! Let us cast a glance behind us, and enumerate the main features of the progress made in this long series of years. If we take the map of the world of Hecatus, who lived five hundred years before the Christian era, what do we see? When it was first published, the known world did not extend beyond the basin of the Mediterranean, and the whole, with a terribly distorted outline, is represented only by a very small portion of southern Europe, the interior of Asia, and part of North Africa whilst encircling them all is a river without beginning or end, to which is given the name of ocean. Side by side with this map, ancient monument as it is of antique science, let us place a planisphere representing the world as known in 1840, and on this vast surface we shall find the portion known, and that but imperfectly, to Hecatus, occupying but an infinitesimal space. Taking these two typical maps as our starting point, we shall be able to judge of the magnitude of the discoveries of modern times. Imagine for a moment all that is involved in thorough knowledge of the whole world, and you will marvel at the results achieved by the efforts of so many explorers and martyrs. You will grasp the importance of their discoveries and the intimate relations between geography and the other sciences. This is the point of view from which can best be seen all the philosophic bearings of a work to which so many generations have devoted themselves. Doubtless the motives actuating these various explorers differ greatly. First we have the natural curiosity of the owner, anxious to know thoroughly every part of the domain belonging to him, 
so that he may estimate the extent of the habitable districts and determine the boundaries of the seas etc and secondly we have the natural outcome of a trade which though still in its infancy introduced even in remote norway the products of central asian industry in the time of herodotus the aim of explorers was loftier they wished to learn the history manners customs and religion of foreign races and later the crusades which whatever else they accomplished certainly vulgarized oriental studies inspired some few with a fervent desire to wrest from infidels the scene of our lord's passion but the greater number with a lust of pillage and a yearning to explore the unknown columbus seeking a new route to the indies came across america on the way and his successors were only anxious to make rapid fortunes differing greatly indeed from the noble portuguese who sacrificed their private interests to the glory and colonial prosperity of their country and were the poorer for the offices conferred on them with a view to doing them honour in the sixteenth century religious persecution and civil war drove to the new world the huguenots and puritans who whilst laying for england the foundations of colonial prosperity were to bring about a radical change in america the next century was essentially one of colonization in america the french in india the english and in oceania the dutch established counting-houses and offices whilst missionaries endeavoured to win over to the christian faith and modern ideas the unchangeable empire of the mean the eighteenth century ushering in our own rectified received errors and served minutely alike continents and archipelagos in a word brought to perfection the work of its predecessors the same task has occupied modern explorers who pride themselves on not passing over in their service the smallest corner of the earth or the tiniest islet with a similar enthusiasm are imbued the intrepid navigators who penetrate the ice-bound solitudes of the two poles and tear away the last fragments of the veil which has so long hidden from us the extremities of the globe all then is now known classed catalogued and labelled will the results of so much toil be buried in some carefully laid down atlas to be sought only by professional savants no it is reserved to our use and to develop the resources of the globe conquered for us by our fathers at the cost of so much danger and fatigue our heritage is too grand to be relinquished we have at our command all the facilities of modern knowledge for surveying clearing and working our property no more lands lying fallow no more impassable deserts no more useless streams no more unfathomable seas no more inaccessible mountains we suppress the obstacles nature throws in our way the isthmuses of panama and suez are in our way we cut through them the sahara interferes with the connection of algeria and senegal we will throw a railway across it the pas de calais prevents two nations so well fitted for cordial friendship from shaking each other by the hand we will pierce it with a railway this is our task and that of our contemporaries is it less grand than that of our predecessors that it has not yet succeeded in inspiring any great writer of fiction to dwell upon it ourselves would be to exceed the limits we laid down for our work we meant to write the history of the discovery of the world and we have written it our task therefore is complete end of section forty two end of celebrated travels and travellers volume three the great explorers and travellers of the nineteenth century by jules verne translated by n d'anvers